From Minnesota Public Radio, this is an American Radio Works special report, The War After the War. I'm Deborah Amos. A perfect image broadcast live from Baghdad at the end of the war. Grateful Iraqis celebrate the fall of Saddam Hussein's cruel regime and try to topple his bronze statue. Young American soldiers use their power to pull the statue down. Within weeks, graffiti appears at the base of the missing monument, misspelled but unmistakable. All done, go home. In the coming hour, The War After the War, from American Radio Works, the national documentary unit of Minnesota Public Radio. First, this news update. This is a special report from American Radio Works, The War After the War. I'm Deborah Amos. August 25th, the day the peace in Iraq became more costly than the war, at least in terms of American soldiers' lives. In the next hour, we'll examine the early mistakes in post-war Iraq, failures that led to an armed insurgency that continues to this day. We begin in central Iraq, Al-Anbar province. This is a dangerous place for U.S. soldiers. Hotshots have given way to organized attacks. Crude homemade bombs have been replaced by sophisticated explosive devices. This is the heartland of Iraq's Sunni Arab Muslims, a minority. They make up only 20% of Iraq's population, but they've been politically important for generations. The British favored them when creating modern Iraq in 1921, and so did Saddam Hussein, a Sunni Muslim himself. Two presidents came from Anbar province, several prime ministers, hundreds of top military officers, and thousands of wealthy businessmen. What happened in this province in the days and weeks following the war jump-started an armed opposition and is an example of what went wrong in post-war Iraq. On the outskirts of Ramadi, the capital of the province, is the home of the Korbit family. They're one of the most powerful families of Al-Anbar, wealthy merchants before the war. Guests sit on high-backed chairs that line the room. A team of servants boils kettles of water over an open fire for the small glasses of tea that are served. Munther Karbit greets us, a young man in his mid-thirties. He's dressed in a traditional long white robe. He chain smokes as he quietly recounts the days after the war and of a family torn apart. All my family were killed. I lost my brother, his wife, his five children, my sisters. I lost my mother. We had one child. She was a baby. She was only eight months. We couldn't find her because her body was scattered everywhere. We, could, we had to collect her pieces, piece by piece. On April 11th, two days after the fall of Baghdad, six precision-guided American bombs exploded in the family compound, killing 24 members of Munther Karbit's family. It's one of the untold stories of the war, of missed opportunities and intelligence failures, says Bob Baer, an ex-CIA agent who was based in the Middle East. He first met the Karbits in the 1990s, when Baer says many Sunni Arabs had turned against Saddam's regime. The Sunni Arabs were finished with him. Even the Karbit in the early 90s recognized this and said, 
let's get rid of the man. Except Washington at the time, the policy was containment. You know, it was bad timing. A decade later, the Carbeats hoped the timing was right. As the deadline for Operation Iraqi Freedom approached, they contacted Bear again. What the family asked me and anybody they could get to, and they had other contacts in Washington in the State Department, they wanted to quietly remove Saddam at the end in order to avoid a war. After the war, they wanted contacts with the American government in order to smooth over the situation to make a better transition to a sovereign government. No one would talk to them. There were other secret offers by the Sunni Arab elites, but Washington was making no deals. It is unclear why the Karbit family compound was targeted, an accident in the fog of war, or a belief on the part of the U.S. military that Saddam might be hiding in Ramadi. Whatever the reason, there was no follow-up investigation, no explanation, says Bob Baer, who visited the family in Ramadi just eight days after the bombing. The only people that ever come by the house was a special forces unit asking if they could take over an adjoining house to use as a base. And, and no one bothered to look in the ruins of this house to see who had actually died, or even asked. Munther Karbid invites us to a traditional meal, steaming plates of rice and boiled lamb, stewed vegetables and fresh bread. He says there was no war in Anbar province. The generals surrendered after Baghdad fell. There was relief for many when Saddam was finally gone. But the American bombing shocked and angered the surviving members of the Karbid family. Whatever goodwill they had for their American liberators was buried in the family compound. America has made a big mistake in coming over here to Iraq and occupy it. Everything will stand against it, and the opposition will rise to an extreme level that they will not believe it. They'd better get out of this country, or else they will see hell. In this conservative corner of Iraq, with a Sunni Arab population already suspicious of American intentions, the armed resistance is not in support of Saddam, but has grown out of a deep sense of loss, loss of power, loss of life, says Peter Galbraith, a professor at the National War College who has long experience in Iraq and was in Baghdad after the war. I think the extent of the insurgency and the support that it has is greater than it otherwise might have been, and I think that is in part the consequence of the very poor planning that was made for the post-war. Again, Bob Baer. We had disenfranchised 20% of Iraq's population, completely removed all power. When we hit this house and all these other places we've been hitting in the Sunni heartland, we have alienated 20% of Iraq's population. 20% of the people can carry on a guerrilla warfare for a long time. A guerrilla war that quickly spread over central Iraq. U.S. Central Command says a soldier with the first. More American soldiers have been killed in Iraq. The U.S. military reports a mortar attack. Three more American soldiers were killed in Iraq. The result is costly for Americans. Two men down! Two men down! The number of wounded U.S. troops is now higher than in the first Gulf. The town of Fallujah is an hour's drive southeast of Ramadi. For American soldiers, Fallujah is a danger zone. For Iraqis, it is the city of mosques. Saddam built dozens of elegant religious centers with soaring minarets for the Sunni Muslims who live here. On this day of worship, 
The faithful promise to continue their fight against the American occupation. They say their town and their religion are under siege. Khalid Abdul Mawin complains American soldiers do not treat them with respect. America is here for a long time and we see a lot of bad things happen from America. It seems like they are against us. The resentment began from the first day when U.S. troops entered Fallujah in an overly aggressive, or I would say combative manner. Fred Abrahams with Human Rights Watch spent seven days in Fallujah interviewing Iraqis and American soldiers. We saw again and again examples of a failure to understand or plan for the complexities of post-war Iraq and a general failure to understand that running a country is much more difficult than overthrowing its government. On April 23rd, two weeks after the fall of Baghdad, the 82nd Airborne drove into this quiet town. Fallujah had already appointed a mayor. Different families were guarding key institutions. They had prevented the kind of looting that was destroying much of Baghdad. People were eager to get back to normal, put their children in class. But that didn't happen. The American military had set up headquarters in a local school. It was another source of tension and misunderstanding, says Fred Abrahams. Part of the problem was the lack of translators so that American forces couldn't understand what Fallujah residents wanted. And these misunderstandings culminated in the events of April 28th when an estimated 17 people were killed at a demonstration. The demonstration here was a local matter. The protesters wanted the Americans to leave the school, but American soldiers believed the angry crowd was there to support the fallen regime. April 28th, the day of the protest, was also Saddam Hussein's birthday. The army claimed they were responding to shots fired. A Human Rights Watch report draws a different conclusion. The response of the 82nd Airborne was excessive and indiscriminate and they called for an investigation. The main evidence were the ballistics. We looked at the walls of the school where the U.S. soldiers were based. We found no evidence whatsoever, no conclusive evidence whatsoever to prove that they had been shot at. We saw a few marks that might have been bullets. And in contrast, the wall across the street from the school was pockmarked with bullet holes that clearly showed a wide and sustained response by the U.S. Army. A Toyota taxi cab parked across the street from the school is racked with bullet holes. The driver, Osama Salah Abdul Latif, had tried to rescue the wounded to take them to the local hospital. But he says American soldiers stopped him by shooting up his taxi. Abdul Latif was wounded himself. The Americans, he says, are worse than Saddam. Before the previous regime, I shot by accident. After a while, they sent from high officials from the government to apologize and to give me some money. And now America shoot me. They didn't care about me. They never came to apologize. They never came to see what I am. A few blocks away from the school, a wealthy Fallujah merchant opens the heavy lock on his front door for visitors. Mohammed al-Asawi says the shooting at the school changed Fallujah, convincing many they had to drive the Americans out of their town. It not only changed, it shocked the people about the reality of the Americans. That massacre that happened, I don't know, it was horrible. In the family kitchen, his wife and daughters prepare lunch over a gas stove. 
Since the end of the war, electricity is sporadic, so is the water, necessities Iraqis took for granted before the war. And there are the periodic house-to-house -house searches by American soldiers, usually in the middle of the night, kicking in doors, looking for weapons. When U.S. soldiers put their boots on the back of men's heads, there is no greater humiliation, says Al-Asawi, because Islam forbids putting the forehead on the ground, except in prayer. The tanks are all the time in streets, the Apaches, the fighter planes. It gets so miserable that you would go out in the streets and strike them and attack them, because you can't bear it anymore. Soccer field is complete in Fallujah. We'll be rolling out in 10 mics. Over. American soldiers were unprepared for this deeply religious, conservative town. They tried to break the wall of resentment with a Hearts and Minds campaign. Staff Sergeant William Gaddis, a reservist from Arkansas, worked on a new soccer field. When the soldiers first started coming back in, none of the vendors would sell them anything, any Cokes or snacks. The kids were giving us the thumbs down and rocks getting thrown. On this day, children swarm the military work party, exchanging grins and chatter in broken English. Y'all want to sing and clap? But the adults nearby are sullen and suspicious. You know, they may come tonight and tear this soccer field up. I don't know, but um, it's here anyway. Within hours, the goalposts are gone, the fresh dirt carted away, the soccer field destroyed. As the armed opposition in Al Anbar province grew, new groups announced themselves on Arabic language television. The Iraqi National Islamic Resistance, Iraq's revolutionaries, Al Anbar's armed brigades, the Black Banners Organization, shadowy groups that may or may not cooperate with each other or even share the same goals. And with each new funeral in Al Anbar province, local anger grew as well as approval for the armed opposition. The American military insists the insurgents are organized and funded by Saddam Hussein and say the fury will subside once Saddam is killed or captured. But internal Defense Department research papers show no one knows exactly who is organizing the opposition. The best guess is a mixture of Saddam loyalists homegrown religious extremists, a small number of Arab fighters. Peter Galbraith says it also includes Sunni Arabs who hate Saddam, but believe the U.S. is dealing them out of the new Iraq. It's wishful thinking to assume that the opposition to the Americans are all supporters of Saddam Hussein. It's also very dangerous thinking because it is the same kind of false assumption that has put the United States into the quagmire it now is in. I'm Deborah Amos. You're listening to The War After the War, a special report from American Radio Works, the national documentary unit of Minnesota Public Radio. Our program continues in just a moment from NPR, National Public Radio. This is The War After the War, a special report from American Radio Works, I'm Deborah Amos. The fall of Saddam's regime liberated Iraq's Islamic extremists. These homegrown militants began to preach fiery Friday sermons against the American occupation while encouraging others to organize an armed revolt. 
International recruits could read any number of radical websites calling for volunteers to head to Iraq. The country's long borders, unpatrolled since the end of the war, became an open door for radical Muslims. Iraq the new battleground for their violent grudge against the United States. Hussein Harkani, a visiting scholar with the Carnegie Peace Endowment, has been monitoring the websites. They talk a lot about Baghdad. They talk a lot about Iraq. They show images of many, many years of Muslim humiliation. It'll be juxtaposed with another image, especially on the flash sites, a Palestinian image, an Afghan image, an Iraqi image, basically saying it's one war, but many theaters of battle. Islamic extremists were the first suspects in the August 19th bombing of the United Nations headquarters in Baghdad. A suicide driver guided a truck into the UN compound and set off a massive explosion at four in the afternoon. The truck was packed with sophisticated military explosives from the Iraqi army arsenal. Was this al-Qaeda? Disgruntled former military men? No one could say for sure. The explosion collapsed a corner of the concrete and glass hotel that had been UN headquarters in Baghdad for more than a decade. The UN's chief diplomat in Iraq died in the blast, as well as 24 others. The UN attack followed destructive hits on major water and oil pipelines and on the Jordanian embassy. By late August, the pressure to add more troops in Iraq was mounting. It's not a question. They would send more troops if they have them. We simply have no more troops. James Dobbins is the policy director at the Center for International Security and Defense Policy for the RAND Corporation. We're fully stretched. We simply have no more troops. I mean, one-third of the U.S. Army is in Iraq, which means every single man and woman in the U.S. Army is either in Iraq or on his or her way to Iraq or on his or her way back from Iraq. And the only way that we can raise the troop numbers in Iraq is bring in other countries in a much more significant way than we've been able to do so far. With the U.S. deploying 90% of the troops, paying 90% of the cost of the occupation, and suffering more than 90% of the casualties, the troops on the ground are paying the price of going it alone. I'm just a dog-faced soldier with a rifle on my shoulder. I eat raw meat for breakfast every day. The Pentagon had plans to reduce troop strength from 150,000 to 30,000 after the war. Those plans were quickly abandoned as the Iraqi insurgency gained momentum. Bad news for these young soldiers on this hot, dusty piece of ground on the outskirts of Fallujah. The 3rd Infantry Division had brought the war to Baghdad. By early June, home base was a city that had become one of the centers of the armed rebellion. When would the 3rd Infantry Division go home? Nobody knew. Once they find out there's no actual date we're going to be home, you can't count down anything. There's no, you don't look forward to the next day. Private First Class James Hargate says the uncertainty took a heavy toll. You don't, we, nobody really cares about anything, you know, it's just good news you don't believe it because it don't happen. They say good news and the next day it changes. So yeah, that's all it is. A typical reaction, and there are more serious ones. 
Some soldiers simply withdraw into silence. Others can't eat or sleep. Then there are the nightmares. Soldiers have seen their friends die in Fallujah. They have been shot at themselves. But the rules had changed on when they could fire. The quick shift from combat to peacekeeping, more like policing than fighting, is a difficult adjustment, says Sergeant Luke Henry. These guys trained for a year how to be killers. There's not a switch on the back of their head. They're human beings. You don't change from one day to the next. Sergeant Henry and Captain Thomas Longo served as the medical mental health team for the 3rd Infantry Division. To make that shift from the things that they were trained and trained and trained to do to all of a sudden say, don't do that anymore, that's where a lot of the anxiety comes. Anxiety that also comes from working with the wrong equipment. Heavy tanks and Bradley fighting vehicles are not much good for peacekeeping. Thin-skinned Humvees are not much protection against grenades and homemade bombs, the weapons of the Iraqi insurgency. In post-war Iraq, the U.S. military has conflicting jobs. Eliminate the resistance, which often means terrorizing Iraqi civilians who get in the way of military operations. And at the same time, maintain law and order, which means becoming the local friendly police force. So, another anxiety. Were there enough troops in Iraq to do the job? Before the war, Pentagon planners said additional troops for post-war Iraq were unnecessary. As Deputy Defense Secretary Paul Wolfowitz made clear in February, two months before the war, in testimony to Congress. It's hard to conceive that it would take more forces to provide stability in post-Saddam Iraq than it would take to conduct the war itself and to secure the surrender of Saddam's security forces in his army. Hard to imagine. By July, even as the death rate averaged one U.S. soldier a day, President Bush concurred with the Pentagon's original assessment. There are some who uh, feel like that, you know, the conditions are such that they can attack us there. My answer is bring them on. We got the force necessary to deal with the security situation. The White House had to reverse that assessment by September. The U.S. could not go it alone after all. But critics say U.S. planners should have anticipated the problems. I think they underestimated the security requirements of the security gap which would emerge when the old regime collapsed. James Dobbins headed post-war reconstruction in Kosovo, Bosnia, Haiti, and Somalia for the Clinton administration. He was sent to post-Taliban Afghanistan by President Bush. After six nation-building operations in 12 years, he says there is a record of what works and what does not. It's very labor-intensive, it's very resource-intensive, and it takes a long time. Dobbins researched the history of American nation-building beginning with Germany and Japan. His new book shows the key to success is measured in time, troops, and money. Bosnia and Kosovo are examples of what works, says Dobbins. Iraq is not. I think the operations in which uh, we went in very heavily from the beginning with a conscious effort to suppress resistance, suppress even the thought of resistance, we suffered no casualties at all. Bosnia and Kosovo would be examples of that. How does Iraq stack up? Iraq, in terms of uh, manpower, is still about a third of that that we committed in the Balkans. 
Um, there are obviously a lot of factors besides pure manpower, but pure manpower does seem to make a difference. Manpower makes a difference in reducing American military casualties, says Dobbins, and reducing civilian casualties as well. We were inflicting far higher levels of casualties, not only on those who were resisting us, but also on innocent civilians caught in the crossfire. And this clearly operates at cross-purposes with the overall intent of the operation, which was, is to stabilize the country and underpin a, a transformation to democracy. And American troops, who had just fought a war, had to change gears almost overnight. When a, a warfighting outfit is suddenly, within the space of a few hours at times, called upon to suddenly be peacekeepers, it's very, very difficult, and they have trouble making that shift. Colonel Robert Knapp is a psychiatrist with the 113th Medical Company, a reserve unit from California. In May, the unit opened a treatment center in a Baghdad hospital. Once a private clinic for Saddam Hussein's most senior aides, it was quickly Americanized. A soldier played video war games at the sign-in desk. We are the, Red God. the clinic specializes in treating combat stress reaction Symptoms can be debilitating, including memory loss and frightening flashbacks. When the medical team first arrived, the caseload was one or two a day. Colonel Knapp saw the caseload jump to 18 a day when the 3rd Infantry Division got orders to stay in Iraq indefinitely. I think doing things that you're trained to do is less stressful than doing things that you're not trained to do. Clearly, when the figures show that the need for combat stress control is during the peacekeeping phase and not the acute fighting phase, those figures can speak for themselves. Soldiers needed help coping with their fears and frustrations over the chaos of the country. Colonel Knapp and Major Beth Salisbury designed a treatment program to address the cultural misunderstandings between American soldiers who had sacrificed to liberate Iraq and a population that was growing increasingly hostile. I think it is difficult for people to understand that not everybody is happy we're here. Um, and I think that's a difficult thing even for me as a soldier to swallow. And trying to get them to look at a bigger picture of why that might be is a difficult task. Saying, you know, there are reasons why that might be is that they're frustrated because they have no electricity or they're being rationed or they don't have water all the time. And so I think that's really hard to get soldiers to understand that. But the growing hostility was unmistakable. Part of the blame rests with Washington's pre-war misconceptions, a failure to understand Iraqi nationalism and deep mistrust of the United States. Another misconception, Iraqi exiles who had not been in Iraq for years convinced the Bush administration that a liberated Iraq would greet the American military with open arms. It did not happen that way, says former CIA agent Bob Baer. It was a con. It was a, it was a brilliant con. I know all these people. They're very articulate. They speak native English. They know more about Iraq than we'll ever know. But the problem is they were exiles, and you, you just can't trust exile groups. They had a dog in the fight, if you like. They wanted us to invade. They, they cooked the information, you know, slanted the analysis, and Washington's a hothouse. And this just took a life of its own. And there were mistakes after the war that soured a lot of Iraqi goodwill. One example, says Peter Galbraith, who was in Baghdad after the war, the month-long looting spree 
that the U.S. military would not or could not stop. It isn't that the United States failed to protect everything. It failed to protect anything. And the only conclusion I can draw from what happened is that there was no plan whatsoever to protect key public institutions in Baghdad. One unprotected institution, Iraq's nuclear research facility. Iraqi looters carted away barrels that contained dangerous nuclear material. The U.S. military eventually secured the facility and the looted material, but for more than a month, looting continued in the rest of the facility. There were not enough soldiers to stop it. Looters came in waves, carrying away metal frames, stacks of wood, rusty barrels, anything of value. The looting has been absolutely devastating. Every significant public institution in Baghdad was looted, and most of them were burned. Every government ministry except for the oil ministry. And so the looting was profoundly demoralizing for Iraqi professionals who are the very people with whom the United States wants to work and needs to work. The looting gave way to more organized crime, daytime robberies, carjacking, and kidnapping, and sent a message, says Peter Galbraith, that the Americans could not control the country. The fact that the United States allowed the looting of the capital of Iraq to proceed unchecked for well more than a month suggested to many Iraqis that the United States was not the superpower that they thought, but that it was disorganized, ineffective, and in particular, it led Iraqis who didn't like the fact that the Americans had come in to believe that they could successfully challenge American authority. A challenge that soon moved to the streets of Baghdad. Hopefully this is helping and showing the criminals that they're not in control. Texan Jim Steele wears a baseball cap with his flak jacket. He came to Baghdad as a U.S. advisor to train newly recruited Iraqi police. On this night, Steele is on a training patrol in one of Baghdad's poorest neighborhoods. The cheers here are for an intense game of pool on the sidewalk. When the neighborhood's electricity blinks off, an American soldier shines his flashlight on the green table so the game can go on. This is American-style community policing, walk the beat, show the force. In the Baghdad version, there is one Iraqi officer, four armed military American police, two American police advisors, including Jim Steele. Steele stops to talk to a group of men gathered at a local restaurant. The translator is Newman Shubar, an Iraqi-American who is also an advisor to the Iraqi police. It's still not secure, he's saying. It's still too many weapons out on the street, he's saying. Some people uh, shoot in the air, as we just heard. Okay, and we, we hope that the coalition forces can uh, fight this uh, this phenomenon. Yeah, how, how's he They complain about an illegal gun market in the neighborhood and say there are still daytime robberies. In Saddam's time, 40,000 police were on the beat in Baghdad. 
it will take years to rebuild a police force, as Bernard Carrick, a former New York City police commissioner, appointed to help restore law and order. Basically now what they do is they have to go out on patrol. They've never done this before. They don't know that patrolling is not riding up and down the highway 40 miles an hour. You have to know what's going on in those streets. When you hear gunfire, you have to go toward the gunfire. You know, you have to look for the people that has the gun. American soldiers now look for the guns. Carrick proposed sending 28,000 new Iraqi recruits for intensive police training courses in a military camp in Hungary. But the new recruits wouldn't be home for 18 months, still leaving Baghdad neighborhoods dangerously unprotected. Which is one reason why Abdul Karim Alawadi keeps a gun in his bedroom. Armed men broke into his Baghdad home in broad daylight. The robbers put a gun to his son's head and demanded money. And after that, I don't know what's really a disaster. Maybe kill me, kill my wife, kill my children. So I fighting them to avoid this disaster. With the rest of his family at risk and his son's life at stake, Abdul Karim decided to take the law into his own hands. He climbed up on his roof with a rifle he had never fired before and shot at the robbers, scaring them away. Many have not been as lucky. With crime out of control, Iraqis blamed the American-led occupation for turning their country into an ungovernable, lawless mess. Peter Galbraith says that makes the reconstruction harder than it needs to be. It is a fundamental rule that you cannot occupy and run a country except with the cooperation of the people you control. If you have to do it all yourself, you are going to have to send in a vast administrative apparatus. So the United States needed the cooperation and support of Iraqis, and it lost a lot of respect and therefore a lot of cooperation by the way it mishandled the early period following the war. You're listening to The War After the War, a special report from American Radio Works, the national documentary unit of Minnesota Public Radio. I'm Deborah Amos. Major funding for American Radio Works comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, and the members of Minnesota Public Radio. To see photographs that accompany this report, visit our website at AmericanRadioWorks.org. Our program continues in just a moment from NPR, National Public Radio. This is The War After the War, a special report from American Radio Works. I'm Deborah Amos. When the metal gate is shoved open at the fire station in this Baghdad suburb, the street children clap their approval. Something important is going on here. It is the best show in town. American soldiers are already inside. More than a dozen determined neighborhood men have also arrived, sweeping through the young curbside audience. This is grassroots politics, a neighborhood election, organized and run by young American soldiers. It is the first time these Iraqis have taken part in any governing role. 
Guiding them through the process is Lieutenant Tom Griffith. It ranges from uh, teachers, doctors, lawyers, to people who are currently out of a job and haven't had one for a while. So it's a good cross-representation of the neighborhood. Iraqis from the rundown neighborhood known as Sadr City are frustrated by the slow procedures that Griffith insists on. Why can't we just talk about our problems, asks one man. What are we doing here, another grumbles. But no one walks out. And Lieutenant Griffiths gets them back on track. Right now we need to get back to the agenda. We need to select a chairman, a vice chairman, and a recorder. American soldiers have organized elections all over Iraq, part of the nation-building promised in the aftermath of the war. The American soldier gives a civics lesson. The elections, he tells them, gives them a powerful responsibility, not power. Everyone here represents different districts. You all have problems with sewage, electricity, uh, schools, people getting paid. You need to bring that to the table here so that we can address these issues, bring them up higher to the district, so on and so forth, so that the issues can get addressed. This is a Shia Muslim neighborhood. Shias, the majority in the country, suffered more than their share of oppression under Saddam's regime. Now they have an equal share in the hardships of post-war Iraq. But the chance to finally run their own affairs, to have a say in the country, has made Shia Muslims more tolerant than other Iraqis of their American rulers. I think there were elements of the population that certainly were prepared to greet the troops as liberators, significant elements of the population, and, and there still are. James Dobbins managed the last five American-led nation-building operations for the Clinton administration and for the Bush administration. But in a situation like this, in which the old regime has collapsed, what the population is looking for from the new uh, sheriff, if you will, us, is security. If you're not offering them security, then you're an attractive nuisance. So we're losing a lot of the goodwill because we're not providing security, and we're not providing security because we're not thick enough on the ground. Goodwill evaporated in the Shia Muslim community when a car bomb exploded in the city of Najaf, south of Baghdad, on August 27th. NPR reporter Ivan Watson recorded the blast and the terrifying confusion in the moments afterwards. The explosion killed Ayatollah Mohammed Bakr Hakim, the leader of Iraq's largest Shia Muslim political movement. Ninety-five others died as well. Many Shiites blame U.S. forces for failing to bring security to a country, they say, that is lawless, a rebuilding effort, they say, that is adrift. It is a dangerous sign. James Dobbins. Security is a prerequisite for all of the other things one wants to achieve in a post-conflict situation. The political transformation that one is about to the economic reconstruction that one is about. If one doesn't achieve security, then whatever one spends in the other areas is ultimately wasted. Fear and uncertainty in post-war Iraq have changed Iraqis' lives. On the side streets surrounding this girls' school, Parents wait in parked cars. They send their children to school, but stand guard during class to make sure it is safe. English teachers Dalal Kamalaboud and Majda Abbas say they are also afraid of the carjackers and kidnappers that plague the city, but risk coming to work because theirs is the only paycheck for the family. We faced enough, that's why we are now impatient to bear any more difficulties. 
and we hope now to have a better one. Um, circumstances doesn't show that. They've already lived through three wars in 20 years. The decade of UN-imposed sanctions also had devastating results in the 1990s. Widespread poverty, a rise in juvenile delinquency, prostitution, and begging. Almost every Iraqi family suffered. Iraq's economy was close to collapse. This was the country America took over when major combat ended in May. The Iraq Dalal Aboud and Majda Abbas expected the Americans to fix. Maybe it takes a lot of time, so we have to be patient. But, but we are fed up. 35 years of, you know, patience and terrorists. We have to stay home. We don't have to say this is right, this is wrong. So we are fed up now. And don't forget that we are old enough. We can't how be... How much we have left? How much we have left for me? How much I have left to live my own life as I wish? Nothing, I think. How long will it take to rebuild Iraq? The more immediate question, when will Iraq be safe enough so rebuilding can go on? International aid workers are moving out, leaving Iraqis to solve their hardest problems alone, especially the ones that cannot be seen. At Yarmouk Elementary School, Iraqi psychologists from the University of Baghdad read out a long questionnaire. Safa Abdel Rasul and Masoon Karim are part of a university project to assess the effects of the war. Listen to me, boys and girls, ask Rasoon Karim. There's no electricity now. Which one of you is afraid to go into the dark and empty places? Hands shoot up. How many have trouble sleeping? More hands reach out. Do you have trouble concentrating, eating? Are you afraid of loud noises? Most of the children raise their hands. Which one of you has bad dreams about the war? The children share their nightmares. I dream that while I'm walking, they fire a missile on me from an airplane. I have this dream all the time, says this boy. I dream that the Americans came to our house and destroyed half of it, and we got lost and couldn't go back home, says this girl. Flashbacks, nightmares, fear of the dark or loud noises are consistent with the symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder. Untreated, it can last a lifetime. Iraqi psychiatrist Ali Hassim. Many kids who are considered to be normal, but they are reluctant to join the school, reluctant to sit the exam, reluctant to prepare their homework, even reluctant to play and does not enjoy playing. They do not enjoy life. And this is a very, very tragedy. These are traumatized children. When school opened after the war, teachers at Yarmouk School say some students didn't come back. The children who did seemed different, more aggressive, more anxious. While researchers from Baghdad University can document the problem, there's not much they can do about it. There are no programs, no experts to run them, says Dr. Hassim. The international teams which rushed into Bosnia, Kosovo, and Rwanda have not come to Iraq. It's our duty to offer the best that we can do. Of course, we had little expertise in dealing with such 
troubles and in the whole Iraq. We haven't any child psychiatrists, believe it or not. Not a one. Oh. This new radio program in Baghdad is trying to reach out to troubled kids. The weekly show is called Shabab, in English, Young People. The speaker is Dr. Al-Harith Abdul Hamid Hassan. He's the director general of the Psychological Research Center at Baghdad University. He says after 35 years of a brutal regime, after three devastating wars in three decades, the trauma runs through generations. The problem is there within the family, within the father, within the mother, within the uncle, you see, within the auntie. They have this anxiety in their homes and they have it in the school itself because the teacher the superintendent of the school also is suffering from all these things. And you can see why at this computer center in Baghdad organized by the Free Prisoners Committee. They have compiled the recovered records from Saddam's prisons, creating a searchable database. There is a long line of people hoping to discover the fate of family and friends. Abdul Razak Kabal clutches a small piece of paper, a list of eight names in small Arabic script. The computer operator takes Abdul Razad's list and types in the first name. There is a match, executed in 1981. All eight names are in the database, and with each confirmation, more tears roll down Abdul Razad's face. Eight of the family were executed. I have 14 persons who is missing from my family, and I'm looking for them. Abdul Razad says he is a Shia Muslim. In 1981, a neighbor turned his relatives in to Saddam's security service for performing a religious ritual at home. Shia religious expression was often interpreted by the regime as political opposition and brutally punished. Now they tell me that eight of them were executed just because they did the rituals. At the time, Abdul Razad remained silent. He was a brigadier in the army. To associate himself with political prisoners would have ended his career, ruined his immediate family. For many Iraqis, the grief and the guilt are overwhelming, says psychiatrist Al-Harith Abdul Hamid Hassan. He runs one of the few private clinics in Baghdad and he says many Iraqis need counseling. Well, quite a lot. I can't give you the number. I haven't got statistics, if you like. But in, in my opinion, I think quite, quite a lot. Now, with power outages, water shortages, mass unemployment, and overwhelming fears for personal safety, he sees more patients than ever before, with different symptoms but common concerns. He's quite worried about himself, uh, he's worried about his wife, he's worried about his daughter, whatever. So they are looking eagerly, actually, for safety. They need now safety and security even before basic needs. There is a sense of uh, hopelessness and helplessness because of what had happened. Dr. Ali Hasim. Our people was suppressed for decades. And here comes the chance to relieve that suppression 
And I'm sorry to say that sudden relief of suppression has resulted in a disaster. We need a process of rebuilding again, and I don't know how that's going to take place. But back on May 1st, it all seemed so clear, so simple, when President George Bush congratulated U.S. forces and declared major combat over, standing on the deck of an aircraft carrier off the coast of California. Because of you, our nation is more secure. Because of you, the tyrant has fallen and Iraq is free. It was a million-dollar photo op, but within months of the president's declaration, almost every assumption Washington made before the war had been proved wrong. The collapse of every institution in the country came as a surprise. The price of this war will come from American pockets. The massive bill for rebuilding Iraq will come due long before Iraq's oil fields provide crude and cash to pay for the reconstruction. And the unexpected war after the war that began in the Sunni Arab heartland of central Iraq threatens to engulf the country. If there's a base of support among the population, or at least a population that has been turned off by the American occupation, then there's a danger that even larger attacks and more lethal ones could be carried out. Peter Galbraith. Most Iraqis wanted Saddam Hussein gone, but most Iraqis do not want to be ruled by the United States, and they do not want a long-term American presence. This is an ancient culture of which the Iraqis are rightly proud, and they want to run their own affairs. They don't want to be treated like a colony. President Bush has outlined the cost of the war in Iraq for the first time, more than $80 billion for this year alone. A billion dollars each week just for the military operation, billions more to stabilize the country. And almost every day, another American military casualty. Here, American soldiers stand and pay their last respects. A pair of boots, an empty helmet balanced on a rifle. A reminder of another price for post-war Iraq. A price, says James Dobbins, that is higher than it needed to be. After all, this is the sixth major nation-building operation the United States has mounted in 12 years, five of which have been in Muslim countries. We really should be getting better at this. The War After the War was produced by Deborah Amos with Tom Bullock. It was edited by Deborah George. Production assistant, John Alexander. Coordinating producer, Sasha Eslanian. Project coordinator, Misha Quill. Mixing by Josh Rogerson and Craig Thorson. Web producer, Ocean Kalin. The managing editor is Stephen Smith. The executive producer is Bill Buesenberg. Major funding for American Radio Works comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and the members of Minnesota Public Radio. To learn more about the war after the war and to listen to this and other American Radio Works specials, visit our website at AmericanRadioWorks.org. American Radio Works is the national documentary unit of Minnesota Public Radio. This is NPR, National Public Radio.